Amen. Isn't it great to just sing the top of your voice, shouting, singing the praises of God? There's just nothing like it. Um, how uplifting it is. Who invented music? God did. Been around since the beginning. Even before, I would imagine. I know it has been before the, invented before the beginning of the earth. The Bible says the heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows forth his handiwork. It says there, the heavens praise, lift up their voice to God. We know even the host of heavens praise God. Johann Sebastian Bach said this, All music should have no other end and aim than the glory of God and the soul's refreshment. When, where this is not remembered, there is no real music, but only a devilish hubbub. I don't care how good the world's music is. It's just a devilish hubbub compared to what we just experienced. When we lift up our voices to God, Johann Sebastian Bach headed all of his compositions, J.J., which stood for Jesu Yuva, which means Jesus, help me. He ended every composition with S.D.G., Sole de Gratia, which means to God alone be the glory. There really is no music, unless it's God's music. Who invented us? You ever thought of yourself as invented? But he did. He invented humanity. Why? Why did God invent music? What's Sebastian Bach say? Sole de gratia, to God alone be the glory. Why did God invent music? For the glory of God. Why did God invent you? To glorify God. Today we continue talking about the seventh action we take with all of our hearts. We started this over a year ago, looking at seven actions the Bible tells us to take with all of our heart. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Seek the Lord with all your heart. Serve the Lord with all your heart. Um, see, I can't even remember them all. Trust the Lord with all your heart. Obey the Lord with all your heart. Return to the Lord with all your heart. And to, now we're talking about praising the Lord with all of our heart. All of those actions are connected in the Bible with that phrase, with all of our heart. And we've been talking about <clears throat> when should we praise the Lord. When. Last week we talked about through trials and hardships and difficulties and challenges. That is, when we are facing battles. You see, most of us find it quite easy to praise the Lord in this context right here. When everybody else is doing it, when our focus is on maybe the words on the screen and the music is playing and, and concert and, and we're just, we feel swept up in the praise, we find it easy in this kind of context. When, you, when we don't find it so easy is tomorrow morning when you got to get up and go to work. And then again, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and then Saturday, you got chores around the house. It's not always easy. And that's why we are talking about we should praise the Lord even when we're facing 
battles, when we're facing hardships and trials and challenges and difficulties, because that is what God uses to lift us up above those things. It's not that those things disappear, it's that it praise takes our focus off of those things and helps us to see God. And that's what's really important, is seeing God. That's what praise is. It's about focusing on God. That's why David wrote in Psalm 149, Let the high praises of God be in our mouths and a two-edged sword in our hands, because praise and battle go hand in hand. Let me ask you this. When is everything in your life perfect? You have no needs. You have no problems. You have no troubles, no trials, no difficulties. You're just, man, everything is perfect. When does that ever happen? It doesn't happen for me. If it happens for you, I need to be talking to you. Never happens. So should we never praise the Lord? No, we should always praise the Lord. And praise is a mighty weapon for us. As God's people. Like Joshua, we talked about last week. How did the walls of Jericho fall down? Did they, ha- did they hurl uh, boulders with, from catapults at the walls? What did they do? They praised. That's the only weapon they used. They shouted. They blew the trumpets. And what happened? The walls came tumbling down. What about Gideon? How did his little band of 300 men defeat the numberless horde of the Midianites? Was it through bows and arrows and chariots and horses? No, it was through praise. And God slaughtered that whole horde. What about Jehoshaphat when those kings uh, of many nations came against Judah? Jehoshaphat said, Lord, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. And and God sent a message to Jehoshaphat saying, just stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. You won't have to lift a finger, but you must go out and face them. And when they went out and faced them, who did they put in front? Did they put the soldiers? Did they put the horses? Did they put the bow and the archers? Who did they put in front, Brian? The choir. I'm all for that. (laughs) Put the choir out front. And what was the choir doing? They were singing and praising God. And it created such a stir that those nations and kings and their armies began to fight amongst themselves and every one of them died. Josh Fatt and his people had to lift not a finger, but their voices to praise. Battle comes in different forms. Trials. I don't know what trial you're facing, but another form that battle comes to us is in the form of temptation. Temptation. How many of you have been tempted this week to sin? You say, do I have to admit that? Come on, people, let's just be honest. My hand's up. Okay. How many of us have been tempted to sin? Do you know that praise is a great weapon, a, a, a distraction from temptation. Charles Stanley was preaching on temptation a couple of weeks ago, and I happened to have my radio on when he, uh, that station when he was talking about this, and he gave this illustration. Let's suppose that you are in a second-story building, an office building, and you and a member of the opposite sex, have you're working together, and you've just naturally kind of grown connected and gotten to maybe cross the line emotionally involved with one another. And it has reached a crescendo now where you are in a moment of intense temptation. Where at that moment, 
you feel that it is impossible to say no. It's impossible because the devil and, and uh, you and the other person have fueled the fire and the flame under you that that temptation's so hot that, that you're right there on the brink of stepping into sin and immorality. But, and, and it's right there. I mean, there's the moment. But all of a sudden, as you're drawing close physically to that person, and you're about to embrace or about to kiss or whatever it is, then all of a sudden a big crash is heard outside the window. And then an explosion. And so what do you do? You rush to the window and you look downstairs outside the window and you see that there's been an automobile accident. You see a car on fire. You see legs or arms hanging out of the, the car. And, and your instinct then is to what? Go back to hugging and kissing? Your instinct is to rush down and rescue those people. Help those people in some way. He used that illustration to remind us that of the scripture that says in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has come upon you but such as is common to man. But God will, with that temptation, provide a means of escape, an escape route. In other words, when temptation comes, and by the way, God is not the author of temptation. God may try us, allow trials and difficulties to come, only to refine our faith. The devil brings temptation to destroy our faith. There's a big difference. The Bible says God does not tempt man with evil, nor can he be tempted with evil. In fact, all of us are, the Bible says, drawn away of our own lust and enticed. How does the devil know what to tempt you with? Because he knows what you like. He knows what draws you away. And so, God says, when the devil brings that temptation, I'm going to bring you an escape route. And there are many tools, if you will, that you and I could use to draw us away from temptation, to escape temptation. The Word of God, quoting Scripture is one. We'll look at that in a moment, what Jesus did. Another one is just fleeing, running. That's what Joseph did when he was tempted by Potiphar's wife. Relentlessly, she came after him. And relentlessly, he resisted. And finally, he ran. By the way, if you, when you flee temptation, don't leave a forwarding address. Run. Leave. But today I want to talk about how you can use praise as a tool or a weapon against temptation. You can, we can, overcome temptation. Do you know all of us are tempted? Every one of us. And sometimes when we're tempted, we think, nobody else is tempted like this. Why am I so weird? Well, that scripture we just read says, there's no temptation that you're enduring, that you're going through, that is not common to man. Chances are, if you're being tempted like that, others are as well. In fact, the Bible says, even Jesus was tempted in all points, just like we are, yet without sin. How many of you know that it's not a sin to be tempted? It's not a sin to be tempted. The sin comes with what you do with that temptation, if you yield to it, if you give into it. 
And by the way, someone once said, once said that when we see a brother or sister in sin, there are two things we do not know. We do not know how hard he or she tried not to sin. And second, we do not know the power of the forces that assailed him or her. We also do not know what we would have done in the same situation. That's why we're called not to judge. All of us are tempted. We're drawn away by our own desires. But if we were to use the tool of praise, I wonder how more victorious we could be. For example, what if Adam and Eve, instead of continuing to converse with the devil about the forbidden fruit, which by the way, did you know that you converse with the devil too every day? You say, no, I don't want to talk to God. I'm holy. I'm spiritual. I'm do you know that I talk, I converse with the devil probably every day? Ain't nobody in here that's too spiritual, more spiritual than, than Jesus Christ and even Jesus. But he had a, it wasn't so much a conversation. We'll look at it later. But here's how we converse with the devil. The devil says, see this? You want it, don't you? Doesn't it look good? Oh, it would taste so good. It would be so satisfying if you just partook of this. And then you say, no, I can't do that. I'm not supposed to. God said it's wrong. Oh, yeah, well, God's just trying to keep you from having fun. He's, he, he will forgive you if, if you do it just, just this once. Well, no, I'm, I'm really not supposed to do that. I, I don't think that's what God would have me to do. And I, I don't want to, I, I fear God. Well, you're, you can still be a Christian and do this. It's okay. God will forgive you because, you know, God loves you. Now, does that conversation sound familiar to you? <laughs> I'm getting that look again. <laughs> As the old timers say, like a mule looks at a new gate. And y'all look at me like, Do, do I have to answer that? I know that conversation sounds familiar to every one of you. Because that's exactly what goes on in our hearts. We're conversing with the devil. We're having a conversation with the devil. Quit conversing with the devil. Quit arguing whether or not it's right or wrong. And, and whether God said this or God said that. Don't talk to the devil about that. Unless you're going to do what Jesus did, which we'll look at in just a moment. But what if Adam and Eve, instead of conversing with the devil about the forbidden fruit and the qualities of the fruit and all of that, what if Adam and Eve would have turned their eyes off of the forbidden fruit and onto everything else that was allowed and thanked God and praised God for the thousands of other vegetables and fruits they could have eaten? And said, Lord, thank you that I don't need that fruit because if I needed it, you said you would have given it to me, but I don't need it. I need everything else. Thank you for that. What if they would have praised God instead of conversing with the devil? We wouldn't be in the same, we wouldn't be in the mess we're in now. What if David would have turned his eyes away from Bathsheba bathing on the rooftop? Now, David certainly, he was in the wrong place at the wrong time. The Bible says he introduces that chapter. 
says, in the spring, when kings normally go out to war, David was at home. Well, why was David at home? Was he tired? Lazy? I don't know. Well, he was on his rooftop. He looked down at another rooftop, and he saw a woman bathing. Well, Bathsheba had no business bathing on the rooftop. I know that rooftops were more popular back then than they are now. They were, they were flat and had walls around them. But, you know, at least she could have used a shower curtain. But sometimes we can't help what we see, right? But we can help how long we look. And we can't help what we do after we see it. And David looked at Bathsheba and he lusted after her in his heart and he called her to him, committed adultery with her. Then how easily one sin yields another. He yielded to one temptation. Then he was tempted to, I got to do something about her husband because now she's pregnant. What if David would have turned his eyes away from Bathsheba and grabbed his harp and his pen and wrote another psalm. What if he would have just written and, and even put it in the context of beauty, Lord, how beautiful you are. How wonderful, magnificent all your creation is. You see, David lusted after her beauty. He should have looked at the beauty of God. Now, he couldn't see it visibly, God himself, but he could see everything else that was allowed, like the things God had already given him. Now what if Moses, instead of striking the rock in frustration at his fellow Israelites, Moses, bless his heart, was the leader of uh, several million people. And uh, I feel for the guy. I really feel for Moses. Um, because when you're the leader, you hear it all. And they were griping and complaining and whining and fussing about all this stuff. And... and Man, Moses, it just, Moses, the Bible says, was the meekest man on earth. He had to be to put up with those millions of gripers and complainers. And every time they griped at him, it said he fell on his face and, and prayed to God. But boy, this particular time, they had pushed his buttons one too many times. Because he was, after all, only human. And he was fed up. I'm tired of listening to these gripers and complainers. God said, I want you to go and speak to that rock. Out of that rock, I'm going to provide water for my people. So Moses, I guess in a moment of pride and frustration, goes and he strikes the rock. Now it wasn't so much the act of striking the rock because he did that another time. Actually, God told him to strike the rock one other time. It was what he said. He said to the people, must I provide water for you in the wilderness? Moses was robbing God of his power and his glory, pointing their attention to him. And in anger and frustration, he struck the rock in a moment of pride. Do you know why, what happened to Moses because of that? Never saw the promise, never stepped foot into the promised land. God did allow him to see it from a mountain, but he never got to step foot into it. What if Moses, instead of acting out in frustration, would have said, God, I praise you for being such a wonderful providing God that you can even bring water from a rock to satisfy the thirst of several million people from one rock. Who would have thought, Lord, that water could come from a rock? Only you. He would have got to see the promised land. Step foot in it. Inherit it. 
What if the Israelites, instead of griping and complaining all of the time and refusing because of looking at the giants in the land, refusing to move forward, remember what happened to them? What happened to them because they refused to go in when God said they had to wander in the wilderness for 40 years until every adult, 20 years old and older, perished? What if instead of complaining and griping and being fearful and afraid, they would have praised God? God, thank you for delivering us from Pharaoh's army. Thank you for, for delivering us from the oppression of Egypt. Yes, maybe we had more food. Maybe it was tastier, but now, Lord, we are free. And we've seen your hand against the, the Egyptians, how you delivered us. And, and Lord, you, we saw you part the Red Sea for us to walk through on dry ground. And, and Lord, you've led us by a cloud by day and fire by night. Lord, you've taken care of our needs. You've, you've given us manna to eat and water to drink and, and a barren land. Lord, we praise you. What if they would have done that instead of griping and complaining? Then every adult in that group would have seen the promised land. Because the Bible tells us that the Shoes that they wore never wore out. Their clothes never wore out for 40 years. If God could make their shoes and their clothes never wore out, could, you, could he sustain every human life for 40 years? Yes, he could have. But he didn't because they griped instead of praised. What if Achan, remember Achan? They defeat Jericho. That's the first ob obstacle in the way after crossing the Jordan River. As that big city, we talked about it last week. They destroy the city. God says, I don't want you to touch any of the loot. Don't touch any of it. It's not yours. Nobody take any loot. Well, Achan stole some forbidden gold and clothing. And he took it and he buried it in his tent. You know what happened to Achan? He, his wife, and his children stoned because the Achan the spiritual leader disobeyed God. Now what if Achan, who stole the forbidden gold and loot from Jericho, would have been content to praise God for the overwhelming victory and the zero loss of life of the Israelites instead of giving in to his desire? Would have spared his life and the life of his whole family. They would have been inheritors of the promised land. What if Paul and Silas after being beaten and imprisoned for proclaiming Christ, would have praised the Lord instead of griping and complaining and cursing their enemies. Oh, wait. They didn't gripe and complain. They didn't curse their enemies. They did praise. They did lift their voices. They did sing. And pray. And look what God did. Acts chapter 16, verse 26. Suddenly, there was a great earthquake. So that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately, all the doors were opened. And everyone's chains were loosed. And the keeper of the prison, awaking from sleep and seeing the prison doors open, supposing the prisoners had fled, drew his sword and was about to kill himself. But Paul called with a loud voice saying, Do yourself no harm, for we are all here. Then he called for a light, 
ran in and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? This jailer saw something that was quite out of the ordinary. Yeah, an earthquake. That's out of the ordinary. Yeah, jail, prison doors flying open and the shackles falling off the prisoners. Yeah, that's out of the ordinary. And, and the men still staying in the prison even after the doors were open. Yeah, that's out of the ordinary. But what was the most out of the ordinary in this story? Paul and Silas being beaten for doing good, being imprisoned, and still praising God. That is the most unusual part of that story. And that is what drew this jailer to those two men saying, Sir, I want what you have. And that day, that hour, it says they proclaimed to him, they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you and your household will be saved. And then they spoke the word of the Lord to him. You know, I wonder why we don't have more opportunities to witness and to speak the word of the Lord to other people. They don't, they're not attracted to us. They won't give us the time of day because they see we're griping and complaining just like they are. You think, you think this jailer would have, would have come to Paul and Silas had Paul and Silas been griping and complaining and cursing their enemies? No! That's what he would have done. But the fact that he, they were different attracted this man to Christ. You see, praise not only lifts our, our vision and our hearts and our spirits above our circumstances, it, it glorifies God and helps people see Him in us. Let your light so shine before men that they see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. That's what Jesus said. You see, praise is a powerful weapon over temptation. When you are being tempted to any degree, turn your eyes away from them, them, the temptation and on to God. You see, the, as long as you're sitting there focusing on what you're being tempted to do and conversing with the devil about the rightness or wrongness of it, You're headed for defeat. You've got to get your eyes off of that and onto the explosion outside the window. The explosion is when you explode in praise to God. And you verbalize it. You use your voice to speak, to sing, to shout, to pray the high praises of God in their mouth and a two-edged sword in your hand. You see, when the praise, when you lift your voice in praise, it becomes a weapon against the enemy. It was for Joshua. It was for Gideon. It was for Jehoshaphat. Will it be for Lee Waller? Will it be for you? Yeah, it can be. But will you use it? Will you use it? And I'm not talking about just sitting there silently thinking, thoughts of praise. I'm talking about lifting up your voice. Joshua said, shout for I've given you the city. Gideon said, shout for the sword of the Lord. And Gideon, you must raise your voice. You see, Lee, you don't realize Sometimes I don't, it happens so quickly. I don't think about that. 
I understand that. That's why we have to retrain our brain. This social distancing thing, it's hard, ain't it? We got to retrain our brain, not to shake a hand or hug a neck or it's just, and I hope we don't retrain permanently. I hope that we don't forget how to shake a hand and hug a neck. I know temptation and, and happens so instantly, so quickly, you don't even think about it. That's why we need to pray and depend upon the Lord more and more. But in the heat of the moment, I know that's tough. In the heat of the moment, like Joseph. In the heat of the moment, like David. In the heat of the moment, like Achan. In the heat of the moment, like Moses. I know it's tough. I'm a man too. I know it's tough. In the heat of the moment, when you're, when you're facing down someone who hates you and has just spoken evil of you and, and criticized you and cut you down or cut you off in traffic or whatever it is, in the heat of the moment, you want to retaliate, verbalize your displeasure. Why not verbalize your pleasure in the Lord? Why not say when you're face to face with that temptation or that person, instead of exploding in anger, why don't you explode in praise? You say, that's ridiculous. It's ridiculous enough to work. But I bet I'm going to give you another double dog dare. Did y'all do, do last week's double dog dare? Thank you, Claire. She remembers. I double dog dare you the next time you're in the heat of the moment in temptation. To shout, sing, voice, something. Explode in praise. And just watch what happens. See? That distracted you, didn't it? Hey, somebody just said, praise the Lord back there. I know I heard it. They're in our media production room back there. But just like that explosion took that couple's mind off of their temptation. If you will explode in praise, it'll do the same for you. On the authority of the Word of God, I double dog dare you. You'll find that it works. Have you ever noticed what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount when he taught us to pray? Here's what he said. You read it in Matthew chapter 6, verse 13. He said, And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, God's not going to lead us into temptation, but he will deliver us from evil. It's a biblical prayer, but look at the next verse. How does Jesus teach us to pray? For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Have you ever noticed? I didn't notice this until this week when God showed it to me. I've, noticed, I've, I've learned the Lord's Prayer since I, could, since I was little. But I've never noticed this before. What is side by side with the prayer? Deliver me from temptation. What's next? What is that statement? Yours, O oh God, is the kingdom. Yours, O oh God, is the power. Yours, O oh God, is the glory forever. What would you call that? Praise. What if that is the key right there that Jesus has given us all along and we've missed it all these years. We've missed it. The key to overcoming temptation or certainly one weapon is praise the Lord with all of our heart. We must train ourselves to look upon something or someone more beautiful than Bathsheba. More desirable 
than meat in the wilderness. More pleasing than the forbidden fruit. More satisfying than bread after a 40-day fast. And who is that? God. Listen, friends, what the devil... Let me ask you this. What can the devil offer you that God has not already provided or promised? Let's look at the temptation of Jesus. I told you we were going there, and this is where we will wrap things up in Luke chapter 4. The temptation of Jesus, the devil offered him after a 40-day fast, the devil offered him bread. He said, command these stones to be turned into bread. Satisfy your hunger. But what did God already promise? God had already said, I'll meet your every need. I'll provide daily bread. And Jesus used Scripture and He said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. What about the next temptation in Luke chapter 4 and verse 8? He offered uh, Jesus the kingdoms of the world if you would just bow down and worship Me. Jesus knew what had already been provided and had already been promised as Revelation chapter 11 and verse 15 tells us that there is coming a day when the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ forever and He shall reign forever and ever. Even us. The Bible tells us in Revelation chapter 5 and verse 10 that we will reign. And it says that He has made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth. In chapter 20 and verse 6 says, Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. What can the devil offer you better than that? No power, no position, no uh, wealth can surpass what God's already promised. And that's why Jesus said... Get behind me, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only shall you serve. Because he knew that the devil couldn't give him what, was already, what God had already promised. And then the devil offered him to jump off the pinnacle of the temple. Because the, he, he quoted the Bible, the devil did. He said, well, basically, Jesus, you're so important, the angels are going to come rescue you and bear you up lest you dash your foot against a stone. In essence, the temptation was, why don't you just prove who you are? Why don't you just make a name for yourself and let people know who you really are by jumping off the temple. God's not going to let you die before you have fulfilled your purpose. See, Jesus knew that what the devil was offering him, God had already promised him. Philippians 2.11, Brian quoted it a moment ago. Jesus took upon the form of a servant, humbled himself, became a man. It says God has highly exalted him. And given him a name which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, Jesus knew what you and I need to know. That the devil can't offer you anything God has not already provided or promised. And if you just remember that the next time you're tempted, and praise him for it. Lord, thank you that you've already given me everything I need. And you've promised me Great, greater things when I see you. He, the devil has no possessions, no anything that God has already 
provided or promised. Let me pray for us.